0: chapter five. We are continuing this morning in the sermon series we started last week, where we're going to spend four weeks talking about relationships. If you were here last week, you remember that we started where we should have started last week by talking about our relationship with God. And we talked about the idea that our relationship with God should be the number one, the most important relationship in our lives. But next we're moving on to what I think should be the number two most important relationship in our life, and that's with our family. Let me suggest to you that this is probably the hardest of the ones that we're gonna talk about. We have a tendency to find relationships with family to be the most challenging because they're often the most intimate and the people that we live the closest with. But if we are going to glorify God in our lives as followers of Christ, we've got to learn what it looks like to have healthy relationships in the home. And while there's a lot that we could talk about, I'm going to restrict our discussion this morning to marriage, parenting, and children. You know, the family is at the heart of God's plan for humanity. I want you to think back with me all the way to the garden. When God created humanity and he created people in his image, he created, a husband and a wife. And the first thing he did was tell him to go have kids, right? He said, be fruitful and multiply. The family is at the heart of God's plan for humanity. It is the foundational unit of all human society. So we should not be surprised then that the family is often Satan's number one target, That's why the very first murder in scripture is brother against brother. We keep going in Genesis. We see this with Noah and with his family. Out of all of the world, when God is getting ready to judge the world for its sin, he saves one family, Noah and his family. It even says in Hebrews that that Noah constructed the ark for the saving of his household. So we would think then that his family must have really had their stuff together if they're the family that got saved, right? Well, have you kept reading? His family was pretty weird and messed up as well. And don't even get me started on Abraham's family. The whole rest of Genesis is about this train wreck of a family known as Abraham's family that God is going to save the world through. And so here's the encouragement to some of you this morning. A lot of you maybe came in this morning and said, Pastor Nate, you don't get it. I have a dysfunctional family. Here's what I'd say to that. First of all, I've never met a functional one. And second, second, you're in good company. Just read the Bible because all of us, since the fall into sin, struggle to have healthy relationships at home with our families. And this is true in our world today, isn't it? The family is just as much Satan's number one target today as it was in the book of Genesis. Think about how marriage has been under assault in our culture today. We see this in our own nation and several years ago, attempting to redefine what God calls marriage, even at the Supreme Court level. We see this in rising divorce rates. We see this in the fact that people, if you look at statistics, are just putting off marriage longer and longer and longer. You know, me and Megan got married when we were 23 and 20. People acted like we were nuts that we talked to. But listen, one of these days when I'm on my deathbed, I'm not gonna regret that I got married young. I'm gonna wish I had more time with her. We do the same thing with our kids. Our culture treats children as if they are inconveniences as if they are barriers to our fun and barriers to our fulfillment. But the word of God teaches that children are a blessing from the Lord. It teaches us that we are to discipline and instruct our children and train them to know and to love the savior. And so here's the deal. This morning, I want us to recover a biblical vision for what family life is supposed to look like. And I wanna do it by looking at this foundational passage of scripture, Ephesians five and six. But let me start with two caveats before we get in too deep. First of all, I'm 29. I've been married for six years and I've been a dad for three years. And many of you in this room, don't worry, I'm not gonna name names, uh, you probably have kids older than me. So why am I qualified to talk to you about marriage and about children? Well, in my own experience, I'm not. Emphatically, I'm not. But I remember years ago, the first time I ever preached on marriage, I was talking to Pastor David. I talked about how intimidating it is to talk about marriage to people that have been alive longer than me. And he said, listen, Nate, they don't need your experience. They need the word of God. And that's what I'm leaning on this morning. The second caveat is this, I recognize that there are a wide variety of circumstances in this room this morning, a wide variety, right? There are some of you who are married, some of you who are single, some are divorced, some are widowed, some of you have kids, some of you don't have kids, some of you don't have kids, kids, but you want kids, some of you have kids, but you don't want kids. (laughs) Like there's a wide variety of circumstances in this room this morning, and here's the deal. There's no way I can address every situation. There's no way I can address every specific family dynamic. I can't even try. That's what biblical counseling is for. But in these kinds of situations, what I wanna do instead is paint a picture from the scriptures about what God intends for the family to look like. And then I wanna trust the Holy Spirit to apply that picture to your situation. Because here's the deal, here's the main point. We should strive to have healthy relationships in whatever family situation God has placed us in. You don't get to pick the situation that you're in. God does, God's sovereign. God is the one that's writing your story. But wherever you are, God is calling you to be faithful there. He's calling you to bloom where you're planted. He's calling you to be faithful now, wherever you are. And so with all that in mind, let's take a look together at this text. Ephesians chapter five, we'll start in verse 22. This is what the word of God says. Let's open with a word of prayer. Father, we acknowledge the importance of the family in your plan. Lord, we recognize the importance of family in our own lives, but Lord, we also recognize, and I personally confess and recognize that Lord, there are no other relationships in my life that quite reveal my own sin and my own selfishness as it does my family. There is no other area where I more often fall short than in that one. So Father, would you help us? Would you help us to repent where there's sin? Would you help us to make new commitments and new choices to learn to value what you value and love what you love in the home? Father, I pray that as a result of the word of God being proclaimed this morning, that your spirit would create stronger marriages in this church family, stronger parenting relationships with our children and let our families here at Coastal Gloucester be a living, breathing evidence that the gospel really works and that the gospel really does change lives. For we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. And so let's jump in this morning. I'd like to begin by talking about marriage as it comes to family relationships. And I wanna begin by showing you three things that we are called to in marriage. So in marriage, we're called to three things. We're actually called to a lot more than three things, but I, don't have, I only have 40 minutes. So we're only gonna talk about three. Uh, at first, in marriage, we are called to respect God's definition. Foundationally, we have to respect God's definition of marriage. The apostle Paul gives us the biblical definition of marriage here in this text. And he does it by going back to the beginning. He goes back to the beginning. In Ephesians 5.31, he quotes from Genesis 2.24 as God's original intention for marriage from the beginning. And this is what it says. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That is the biblical definition of marriage. You have a man leaving his father and mother, that is leaving that family unit behind and starting a new family with his wife and the two become one flesh. So foundationally, what is marriage? It is one man and one woman coming together and becoming one and starting a new family. That is the biblical definition of marriage. It's the same thing that Jesus teaches in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus said, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Instead, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, quoting the same verse. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Friends, the biblical definition is one man and one woman in a lifelong covenant relationship. And I know what I just said won't win me a lot of popularity points with the culture, and that's okay, because here at Coastal Church, we wanna stand firm on what the Bible teaches about marriage, that it is one man and one woman. So before we can even talk about a healthy marriage relationship, we've gotta know what marriage is by definition, and that's what it is. So we respect God's definition, but next we reflect God's purpose. In marriage, we are called to reflect God's purpose. And now there are many purposes of marriage that we could point to. There's more than one, right? One purpose of marriage is growth and sanctification, becoming more holy together. One purpose is love that we can love one another. Another purpose is companionship, that you have a best friend for life. Another purpose is intimacy, the one relationship where God blesses and ordains that intimacy take place. Another is procreation. Remember, he told Adam I don't need to be fruitful and multiply. And all of those things are purposes for marriage, but none of them is the ultimate purpose for marriage. Paul shows us in Ephesians 5 that the ultimate purpose for marriage is to reflect the gospel, It's to reflect the gospel of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 5.25. I have that inscribed on the inside of my wedding ring because it's my job description. Husbands, love your wives. Does the verse stop there? No. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's the model. That's the pattern. We are to love our wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. What we see in this text is this, that when a husband is loving his wife self-sacrificially and the wife is responding to this self-sacrificial love by humbly following his leadership, that marriage becomes a living, breathing parable of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the purpose of marriage so that the world will see the gospel through us. And here's the deal. I listed a lot of purposes for marriage, but I didn't even list the number one purpose for marriage that the culture will tell you today. The world is gonna tell you the purpose of marriage is happiness. You get married so that you'll be more happy. If marriage makes you happy, go for it. If marriage doesn't make you happy, then don't do it. If you're married and you're not happy, then ditch them and find somebody else. That's what the culture is gonna tell you. Guys, I'm not joking. You know, I had a conversation, well, I wasn't involved in the conversation, I overheard it, but when I was working at the hospital where some of my coworkers were talking and one of my coworkers said, yeah, I'm happy with my husband, but if I'm ever not happy, I'll just leave him. She said it as casually as I would tell you, yeah, you know, I might have a ham sandwich for lunch, but if I feel like it, maybe I'll have chicken. It was that casual of an attitude. And I don't bring that up because that's strange. I bring that up because I think that's pretty normal. That's the perspective that a lot of people have. The whole purpose of marriage is just to make you happy. But let me share something with you this morning. Marriages that are built on happiness are like a house that's built on the sand, That's a flimsy foundation for a marriage because when the storms of life come, when the trials of life come, that house is gonna come crashing down because the foundation was weak. But the marriage that is built on the gospel, that's like the house that's built on the rock. Because when the storms and the trials of life come, you're not obsessed with how can I get out of this so that I can be more happy. Instead, you say things like this, how can I glorify God by being like Jesus in this situation? how can I sacrificially love my spouse as Jesus loved the church? It's the famous Gary Thomas quote, right? What if God designed marriage to make us holy instead of happy? And here's the deal. I don't wanna go too far because I wanna be happy. I don't know about you, I wanna be happy. And I think you do too. But here's the deal. When we make happiness the goal, when we make that the number one thing we're chasing after, when we make that the idol, we're gonna miss it nine times out of 10, if not more. But when we make the goal Christ, glorifying Christ, being like Christ, reflecting the gospel, pursuing holiness and righteousness together, ironically enough, you'll probably be happier because you're both pursuing Christ together. So we're called to reflect God's purpose. Finally, we're called to fulfill our roles within marriage. Ephesians 5 gives some distinct roles to the husband and to the wife in marriage. And in God's wisdom, men and women are not interchangeable. We are different by God's design. That's not something we should be embarrassed about. That's a good thing. Our creator made men and women differently. We're completely equal. We're made in the image of God, but we are different. And we're gonna see this by the way that Paul gives specific instructions, both to the husband and to the wife. Let's start with the husband. Husbands are called, first of all, to love. Ephesians 5.25, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Ephesians 5.33, love his wife as himself. Men, before anything else, if you are married, you are called to love your wife, to self-sacrificially give of yourself for your wife because that's the model. That's how Jesus loved the church, through giving up himself for her but men, you are also called to lead your wife. Ephesians 5.23 says, the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. Men, whether you want it or not, whether you think you were signing up for it or not, God calls you to be the leader in your home. You have been called to a leadership role in your marriage and in your home. And to be sure, this role can be distorted and abused in many different directions. This leadership role can be distorted by the domineering chauvinist jerk, but it can also be distorted by the passive wimp who won't step up and lead. As men, what we are called to in the home is a godly, gentle, loving, yet firm leadership. That's what we're called to, men. But then finally, we're called to nurture our wives. It says that uh, just as Christ washes the church with the word that he might sanctify her, just as we love our bodies as ourselves, we are to care for our wives in much the same way. Think about it. We protect our bodies from harm. We provide our bodies by feeding for them. We wash our bodies, or at least I really hope you do. Uh, to, we take care of ourselves in that way. In the same way, we are to take care of our wives, to nurture them. I love that he says, as their own bodies. I was listening to Vodi Bakum preach on this text this week, and he made this comment that's been in my head a lot. He said, speaking about his wife, she's not just mine, she's me. Think about that. She's not just mine, she's me. We're one flesh. That means you treat her as you would yourself. And here's the deal here's the important reality. I want you to apply that to when you get in a fight. Do you realize there is no such thing as winning a fight with your spouse? Because she's not just mine, she's me. Saying I win a fight with my spouse is like saying my fist won a fight with my face. We're one flesh, we're one. That is what we're called to men, to love, lead and nurture our wives. So wives, what are you called to according to this text? First of all, to submit to your husband. Verse 22, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Verse 24, now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And again, I get it. I know that's not a popular concept in our world today, but let me just suggest something to you this morning. Maybe God knows what he's talking about, right? Maybe God as the creator of marriage and the designer of men and women knows better than us how these relationships are designed to work. And I can assure you that it is when we align ourselves with the design of our creator that we will have real flourishing in our relationships, not when we think we know better. But let's chat about this concept of submission because it gets confused a lot. What does it not mean? Well, first of all, it does not mean that you are some sort of passive doormat who never gets to speak. Of course not. That's a caricature of the idea of biblical submission. But what I really like is that John Piper gave six points about what godly submission looks like in an excellent article that he wrote. I want you to listen to these six points that define biblical submission in marriage. First of all, God knows what is best for us and his way of submission and headship is the path of joy. Second, be sure to marry a man mature enough and humble enough to lead biblically. Third, submission is mainly an intelligent, happy, wise support for that leadership. Fourth, submission as a responsiveness to his initiative taking, which is not comprehensive control, but involves you in the planning of family life. Five, submission means that in a draw, you say, I trust you to do what is best. And six, submission means ultimately submission to Jesus so that you never follow your husband into sin. It is a choice to follow the leadership role that God has given to your husband. An intelligent, wise, joyful followership is whats called to. But next, it says that the wives are called to respect. Verse 33, let the wife see that she respects her husband. The reality is, ladies, everything I just talked about, about your husband's leadership role in the home, he needs your respect in order to do that well. And here's why. There is nothing more emasculating to a man than to feel disrespected, than to feel belittled. If your husband is going to be the godly man and the godly leader that God is calling him to be, he needs your respect. I've seen it before. I've been with couples where a wife will make a critical jab or a comment about her husband and he just shuts down. Looks like a puppy dog that just got scolded. Instead, be your husband's biggest supporter his biggest cheerleader. And I love something else about verse 33. It says, let each one of you love his wife as himself. Let the wife see that she respects her husband. He's uniquely calling the husband to love and he's uniquely calling the wife to respect. And it's not as if the the inverse isn't also true. Husbands need to respect their wives. Wives need to love their husbands, of course. But again, I think there's something unique here because of the role that God has given us. He knows what we need. And it's a lot easier for a wife to submit to her husband if she can see that he is self-sacrificially loving her. John Stott put it this way, a wife is called to submit to a lover, not an ogre. And in the same way, it's a lot easier for a man to lead when he feels respected. And so there might be a couple of questions that are popping into your mind. And I wanna just try to tackle two of those. The first question is this, what if my spouse isn't doing their part? What if you're like, Pastor Nate, all that sounds great. I wanna do everything you're talking about, but my spouse is kind of a knucklehead and they're not doing anything that you just talked about. So does that mean I'm off the hook? What do I do? Well, I'm glad you asked because the Bible addresses that very question in 1 Peter chapter 3. This is what it says. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, in other words, even if they're not being godly, even if they're not doing what they're supposed to do, that they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see you're respectful and your pure conduct. In other words, even if your husband is a knucklehead, you love him and you do what God has called you to do. And God can use that as a means of conviction. I think that same principle could apply the other way around. Here's the principle that's in place here. We control what we can control. We control what we can control. We do what God has called us to do. And then we trust the Lord to work in their heart. And here's the deal. I think that Peter singles out wives here because it's more common in my experience for the wife to be the godly one. Can't say amen, you ought to say ouch is what Vody Bakum always says. I'm always harder on the men in these sermons for this reason. Guys, I think the number one need in the church today, there's a lot of number one needs in the church today, but this is toward the top of the list, is men who are willing to step up and lead their families. Men who are willing to say, I'm going to fulfill this role that God has given me to love my wife sacrificially, to shepherd and disciple my children and to step up and lead. That's what we need to do. Next question. Well, how can I grow in my marriage? All right, Pastor Nate, you've convinced me, but give me some practical handles. What can we do? How can we begin to grow in these things? A couple of thoughts here very quickly. The first thing is communication. It's communication. That is the number one need in our marriages often is that we have better biblical communication. Whenever I do premarital, I do an entire session on communication because I think it is absolutely essential that we know how to speak the truth in love, that we know how to repent and confess our sins, that we know how to forgive one another, that we know how to speak in a loving and a kind and in a way that builds up. You know, I was talking to Pastor David one day, we were riding in the truck and I asked him, hey, in your experience as a pastor, What were the most common things that you tended to see in marriage counseling? And Pastor David, without skipping a beat said, money, sex, and communication. And here's the deal, their problems with money and sex could usually be solved if they had better communication. I think that's true. Let me just be blunt for a minute. If your marriage is struggling, you're probably not good communicators. You're probably not. And that's an area to grow in, that we learn how to be honest with each other, how to be transparent with each other, how to give one another the benefit of the doubt. We've got to learn how to communicate in marriage. But the next is time. It's time. There is no substitute for quality time in your marriage. You've got to be together regularly. You've got to make time for each other, make time to talk. You've got to keep dating your spouse. You've got to make sure you have that quality time together, that you prioritize it. Even if it means you got young kids, you got to hire a babysitter, you got to do what you got to do. You've got to get that time together because the reality is, and I'm speaking from our own stage of life right now, having young kids, the best thing I can do for my kids is have a strong marriage. And I understand that. That's why, honestly, sometimes the best thing I can do with my kids is send them to somebody else for the night. And we understand that. Yeah, all the young parents are saying amen. But listen, we've got to prioritize that time together so that we can grow together. Last thought, how can I grow in my marriage? The last one is get help. If your marriage is struggling, please get help. Please get help. I am a huge proponent of biblical counseling. And if there's a lot of things I wish I could do in the church today, but one of them that I wish I could do more than anything else is to get rid of the stigma around counseling. It does not make you weak if you need to go see a counselor. Guys, I've been to counseling plenty of times. It does not make you weak to go see a counselor And if your marriage is struggling, get help before it gets really bad. That's the principle. Because here's the deal. We often wait until our marriage is on the rocks to go talk to the pastor or go talk to a counselor. It would be like there's a small fire in your house and you said, well, let me wait until an entire floor is on fire before I actually go and call the fire department. No, call as soon as you see the embers starting to come up. Get help. We love you. As your church family, we wanna help you. And it's my hope that we can apply these principles to our marriages to have healthy and strong marriages at Coastal Gloucester. And man, I would love to keep going on this train of thought, but we don't have a ton of time left. And I also wanted to address parents and children this morning. So we're actually gonna keep going. We're gonna jump into Ephesians chapter six now, and we're gonna talk about children and parents together. So let's look at Ephesians six. It says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Let's start by talking about children. What are children called to in healthy family relationships? According to Ephesians 6, two things. The first is obedience, obedience. Ephesians 6, one, children obey your parents in the Lord. So this obedience is foundational to any kind of human society children learn to respect authority first in the home. And oftentimes when they don't learn to respect authority in the home, we shouldn't be shocked when they don't respect authority outside of the home, right, when they get into the workplace, when they get into society at large. But I love that Paul qualifies it by saying, obey your parents in the Lord, which I take to mean insofar as their parents' instructions are consistent with the Lord's. Here's the principle. Just as a wife is never to follow her husband into sin, so children are never to obey their parents if that obedience would require them to sin because obedience to Jesus trumps all other obedience to human beings. But insofar as it is consistent with the Lord, Paul says that this is right. It is right for children to obey their parents. So let's apply this this morning. Paul says the word children, and we tend to put ages on that. Well, does this expire on their 18th birthday or what's going on here? I'm just gonna say, anyone who is still living under the provision and authority and care of their parents, I, who is not left and cleft, you know, the whole Genesis 2:24 thing, you are still responsible to obey your parents in the Lord. And this is where we have to emphasize this. It's not just, and I want to talk to parents for a minute. It's not just that when our children disobey us that it's frustrating or it's annoying or it's embarrassing, it's sin. And we need to treat it as such, right? Like it's not just against me, it's against God. Because God is telling them to obey me in the Lord. So our children are required to obey their parents, but the next is honor. Verse 2 says honor your father and mother. MacArthur put it this way. Obedience is the act, but honor is the attitude. It's the attitude, the idea of treating your parents as valuable. Treating them as worthy of respect and reverence. And this should be familiar to you because Paul is actually quoting the fifth of the 10 commandments that we just studied a month ago. And here's the thing. I just told you that the obedience part is temporary. Like when you're an adult, you move out of the house, you do your own thing. You're no longer required to obey your parents in quite the same way. But the honor part is not temporary. We are always called to honor our parents, to treat them as worthy of respect and reverence. I don't care if you're 5, 25, 55, 75. We are always called to honor our parents, to treat them as worthy of reverence and respect. So let me encourage you, find ways to do that. I mean, next month is Mother's Day. The month after that is Father's Day. Look for opportunities to treat your parents worthy of respect, to honor them, to treasure them in the Lord. So, parents, what are we called to? What are parents called to when it comes to healthy family relationships? Paul tells us this in Ephesians six four. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, let's break down this verse. It starts by saying fathers. Now, both parents are certainly involved here, of course. Both parents are involved in bringing up our children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Paul singles out dad because it's another reminder, dad, husband, that you are the head of your home and God will ultimately hold you responsible. He will hold you accountable for your children but he starts negatively. He says, don't provoke your children to anger. The idea here is don't frustrate them. Don't discourage them by the way that we parent our children. Our children, we must always remember are blessings from God. They are gifts from God. And it is not our role to lead them into anger or lead them into sin, but it is instead our role to encourage them. What are some common ways that we can provoke our children to anger? Well, one of them is favoritism where we have multiple children and we treat one of them with more favor than the others. And again, I already mentioned Abraham's family. This is one of their besetting sins in every generation. They struggle with favoritism in the family. And you can read Genesis to read about the disastrous results that came from that. We can provoke our children to anger by being overly harsh, overly critical, having unfair and unrealistic expectations that they feel like they can never measure up. They feel like they're never good enough for you. Some of you maybe had parents that way and you still feel the scars of that, the effects of having a parent that was too harsh and too critical. But let's swing the pendulum back over this way because I think the opposite is also a problem where we're overly indulgent, where we don't know how to say no. We never set proper boundaries for our children. That can also lead to discouragement because children need those healthy, proper boundaries in order to grow and flourish, So what are we called to do instead of provoking our children to anger? Well, the first word he uses is discipline. He says, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Let's talk about both of those. Instead of provoking them to anger, we discipline. That is, we lovingly and we patiently correct our children. We reward obedience and we punish disobedience. And now let me just give another one of those caveats. Uh, It's not my role here today to advocate for a particular method of discipline. I'm going to leave that between you, your spouse and the Lord. But what scripture is clear on is that we are responsible to correct our children, to discipline our children. In fact, this is what Proverbs 29:15 says. And by the way, there's like 20 proverbs I could have used here. Please go through the proverbs. It's basically a parenting manual. But Proverbs 29:15 says this, "The rod and reproof, you could say discipline and instruction, give wisdom." meaning it is for our children's good. It helps them grow in wisdom. But what happens when we neglect discipline and when we neglect instruction? Second half of the proverb, a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. When we let them do their own thing, when we don't correct them, it brings shame. So why do we discipline our children? That's easy because they're little sinners. You don't believe me. Our children's ministry is looking for volunteers, right, Amy? Or we're looking for babysitters. Like, listen, kids are not born into this world completely holy and righteous. They're little sinners. That's the doctrine of original sin. We know this. We don't have to teach them how to lie. We don't need to teach them how to be selfish. They're pretty good at it. Uh, I remember uh, I was talking to a friend of mine when their baby was recently born. And I said, hey, how's your baby doing? Oh, she's perfect. I said, you know better. (laughs) Because we understand the reality that we are born into this world as sinners. And as a result of that, As a result of that, our children need discipline. They need correction. But here's the deal. The point of discipline is not punishment. The point of discipline is not making rules and enforcing those rules to change their behavior so that they won't be annoying and so that we will look good as parents. That is not the goal of discipline. The goal of discipline isn't even their behavior, first and foremost, it's their heart. The goal of discipline is getting to our child's heart so that they will acknowledge their sin and acknowledge their need of a savior. The point of discipline is to be a tool in their life to bring them to Christ. Paul Tripp wrote an excellent book on parenting. It's got a really clever title. It's called Parenting. So I'd encourage you guys, especially young parents, make sure you pick up that book and read it, but listen to this quote from Paul Tripp. He said, parenting is not a behavior control mission. It is a heart rescue mission. The only hope for a lost child is a radical transformation of his heart. As parents, we have no ability to change our children's hearts, but the heavenly father does, and we are his tools in the lives of our children. So we don't settle for the announcement of rules, the threat of punishment, and the enforcement of consequences. We are looking for every opportunity to address heart issues in our children, praying that as we do, God will work the change in them that only he can accomplish." We are tools in his hands to point them to Christ. One last thought on discipline. The application of discipline requires great wisdom and we're gonna mess up. We will. As parents, we're never gonna get it right. You know, we can go too far in either direction. We can be too harsh. The pendulum can swing. We can be too indulgent. We also need great discernment because especially speaking as a parent with young kids, sometimes it's hard to tell, man, is this rebellion or are they just being a kid? And one way that we can provoke our children to anger is by disciplining them when they're really just being a kid. So it takes great wisdom. And how do we get that? Through the word of God, prayer and Christian community. That's why we need to be with one another. But next, the instruction of the Lord. Bring up your children in the instruction of the Lord. This simply means that we have the privilege and responsibility to teach our children the ways of Christ This is something that was common in the Old Covenant. They were called to Deuteronomy 6 says, these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. In other words, all the time, all the time. Every day, every moment is an opportunity to talk to your children about the Lord. So let me challenge and encourage you. Families here, make sure you're doing some sort of family worship or family devotions together, that you're spending time together in the word of God. Make sure that you're regularly praying together. On your car rides, maybe every now and then, turn off the radio and have a conversation with your kids about the Lord, about the things of Christ. Every day is an opportunity for you to talk to your children about the Lord. Don't miss it. So this morning we've talked about marriage, we've talked about children and we've talked about parents. And maybe there's some of you here this morning who might feel left out. You might be thinking, okay, Pastor Nate, I'm not really in a stage of life where any of those things are particularly relevant to me. Uh, So how can I live in obedience to this text? How can I grow in family relationships? Well, if that's you this morning, I wanna close by reminding you of a profound truth. And it's this, in the church, we are a family. In the church, we are a family. This is one of the great metaphors for the church that's used in the New Testament. We are called to treat each other as family. For example, 1 Timothy 5 says, "'Do not rebuke an older man, "'but encourage him as you would a father. "'Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, "'younger women as sisters in all purity.'" One of the great blessings of the church is that regardless of what your physical family is like, when you become a Christian and you become a member of this church, you get a new family, a spiritual family, a family in the Lord. And I am so thankful to God. and blessed for my biological family. God has blessed me so richly with an incredible family. Yet at Coastal, he's given me another family on top of that. He's given me spiritual fathers in the faith. I quoted Pastor David twice in this sermon already. He's given me a spiritual fathers. He's given me brothers and sisters in Christ. It's a great blessing. And I hope the same can be true for you because the church is supposed to be the place where those who don't have a father at home can come and be discipled by godly older men where those who don't have a mother at home can come and be discipled by godly older women, where those who are lonely can come and find brothers and sisters in Christ who will walk with them, where those who don't have children at home can come and help disciple the next generation in the church. The church is supposed to be the place that fills in the gap. And if you're here today and you think, I don't have a family, my answer is, do you want one? Come on in. We would love to have you. So let me leave you with a few takeaways this morning. First takeaway is this, man, prioritize your family. Prioritize your family. Next to your relationship with God, this is the most important thing in your life. Next to your relationship with God, your family is the most important thing in your life. And let me tell you, for me personally, it's my number one ministry. It is a requirement for spiritual leadership in the New Testament that you have a strong relationship with your family. This is what Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 3. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? One of the best things a pastor can do for his church is love his family. We all are called to make our family our number one ministry, our number one priority. Let me challenge you. Every time you say yes to something, you're by default saying no to something else. And maybe many of us are saying yes way too often to our work. We're saying yes way too often to our hobbies. We're saying yes way too often to our friends. And in doing so, even though those things aren't bad in and of themselves, we're saying no too much to our family. And if that's you, man, prioritize your family. Put them first, make time for them. Next takeaway is this, grow together as a family. Whatever your relationship is with your family, whatever kind of family dynamic you have, look for opportunities to grow together. Study the word regularly and pray together. Attend corporate worship faithfully together. And let me challenge you again for like the third or fourth time, men take the lead here. Do not make your wife drag you to church. Or worse, don't make her go alone. Take the lead. Sing loud in corporate worship. I don't care if you couldn't make the worship team. Lead your family in the worship of God. Take the lead. Talk to your children. Initiate spiritual conversations. Grow together. And one final takeaway. And with this, I'll invite the worship team to come back and I'll invite the prayer team to come forward. And as always, if you have a prayer need or a burden that you came in with this morning, please, we have people who'd love to pray with you. Let me remind you, as we just talked about, that in Christ, you have a new family. In Christ, you have a new family. Matt Chandler once said, where the ideal is lacking, grace abounds. You heard this sermon today and you're like, Pastor Nate, you just don't get how messed up my family is. You don't get how broken my marriage is. You don't get how, man, nobody's speaking to each other in my family. It's this big disaster. My family is falling apart where the ideal is lacking, grace abounds. And God wants to use the church to be the instrument of abounding grace in your life. That this can be the family that fills in the gap. That's what we're called to be, church. That's what we're called to be. And let me remind you that in Christ, regardless of what's going on in your family, Jesus becomes your family. When you become a Christian, he is a brother that is closer than any other. Through Christ, you gain a heavenly father who will love you better than any earthly father ever could, who will never leave you nor forsake you. So if you're here today and that's you, let me challenge you to come to Christ. And in so doing, come to a new family. Let's close with prayer. Lord, we thank you for the gospel, the gospel that brings us into a new family. We thank you that you have brought us into your family, Lord. We thank you for the privilege of knowing you and getting to worship you. Father, I pray for this church. I pray, Lord, that as a result of your word this morning, that your spirit would take it and show us how we can work toward healthy relationships in the family situation that you have sovereignly placed us in. Help us to keep our eyes fixed and focused on you. For we ask it in Jesus' name.